It's said that your real life begins where your comfort zone ends. Well, it's about to get real as we have radically authentic conversations to help you thrive in your personal and professional life while navigating the twists and turns of being human. Buckle up, because this might get uncomfortable. Starts right now with Whitney Lordson. I feel a little bit giddy to start this episode with my guest, Kason, today. We've been chatting for a while, but I still felt like I was trying to contain myself and share some of my excitement once we started recording, Kason, because this is an episode that's about journeys. And I would love to start with the journey of how this whole episode came to be, which was, I believe you reached out to me, maybe it was 2021. I don't know. It's been in the past few years with your company, Explorer Cold Brew. And I actually found a little piece of history, which I'm I'm holding up for Kaysen. Oh my gosh. I know I'm a little bit behind with YouTube episodes. So when this episode comes out, you can see this. But in the meantime, what I have here is a little like printed, stapled Explorer guidebook. Our original. <laughs> yeah. I feel like I should save this as... <laughs> As a memorabilia. But look, there's a picture of you in there. That's me. This is all I knew of you, Kaysen, as just this guy, this (laughs) hand-drawn or like wasn't even a photo of you. And so you and I were emailing back and forth and you sent me the products to try. tried the small little bottles and the bigger bottles and just like felt really a lot of heart behind the brand. And some time went by. I didn't forget about it, but I just time passes and you move on from things. Life happens. Exactly. March 2023, I went to this LGBTQ ally event at the Natural Products Expo, which is a big trade show. And I look across the room and there's Kaysen. And Kaysen, I don't even know how, I think I might've just seen your name tag and maybe it said Explorer on your shirt. I don't even know how I recognized you because I, I don't think I'd seen a photo of you. But I just felt like I have to go talk to Kaysen. <laughs> so I went up, up and said hello in person for the first time and then ended up learning so much about you that I didn't know and felt a lot of awe and excitement. And it began with Kaysen sharing about this show called Race to Survive Alaska that he was on. And at the time, back in March, the show hadn't aired yet. And now that we're recording in August, the show has aired. It's I've watched all the episodes. And I just was like, I have to talk to you more. And I want to share your story on the podcast. Because a couple times you verbally said on the show, alluding to going out of the comfort zone, alluding to being uncomfortable. And if for those that are interested in survival shows, in race shows, I highly recommend it. And it's very much about getting uncomfortable. So there's just so many layers to which I felt like you would be a wonderful addition. And thank you for being here to chat. Well, thank you, Whitney. I know I'm so glad that you came up and said hi in person back in March at Expo West. And 
Yeah, it was. I'm thrilled to be here. I think the topic of journeys is one that I've been thinking a lot about, both with my journey, my race to survive Alaska journey, concluding with the airing of the finale about four weeks ago, and my life journey continuing, my journey as a founder, my journey as someone who's striving to live a happy and fulfilled life in all aspects, whether it's career, relationship, health and wellness. And I'm excited to dig in and have a wonderful conversation with you. It's a journey on so many levels because one that feels very prominent is that when you first sent me Explorer Cold Brew, I did not consider myself an explorer as much as I do today in 2023. I think that I was doing my road trips that I started in 2020. And that was my introduction to camping. But over the last few years, I've started to go well beyond car camping to a lot of outdoor experiences through visiting national parks became a big passion of mine, hiking almost every day, and dreaming of climbing Mount Everest, which is something I wanted to wait to share with you now, is that I didn't really know this about you until I started watching the show. I think you announced that you were you had climbed Mount Everest and I just felt like, wow, like anyone who's climbed Mount Everest, I'm just like so taken aback by. I could spend this whole episode asking you about that alone. I am so pumped to hear that you want to climb Everest. I mean, it was for me a childhood dream well, it started as a childhood dream and then just became like a dream, you know, even or I guess we're all children at heart forever. But those childhood dreams that you think are not ever attainable, like, oh, I want to be an astronaut. Like, I would love to go into space one day. To me, climbing Everest was like that. And it, it's so exciting to hear that it sounds like if I'm understanding you correctly, it's gone from being that inner child's dream to maybe you're thinking about actually actioning that dream at some point in the near to medium term, which would be so exciting because it's the most incredible experience. Well, I have to say it actually wasn't a consideration until just a few months ago. This is a new thing. I felt like it came out of nowhere and I'm still questioning it. I mean, this is very early for me because up until just a few months ago, I was not even a hiker. It was like something, this is part of my journey with you is that my definition of being an explorer, I think I was drawn to your brand because it was cold brew and because you were so nice and just like it felt like a great brand, a heartfelt from the ground up type of brand. I'm, I'm always drawn to small businesses like yours, but it took on a new meaning and it is still developing in this moment because, you know, I think when I heard about your story, Kaysen, when you first reached out, like I didn't even fully understand why you developed this and why this product line was important to you. So I would love to hear it again from you and share with the listeners uh, because with sometimes without context, or without caring about the context, we don't even fully absorb it. So I would love to reabsorb why you created Explorer and also hear some of these stories sprinkled in about like coffee and adventuring and exploring and, and how that developed into a brand that you now run. Yeah, I think it's, it's a great place to start because one of the challenges with our brand, I think if you were to talk to an actual branding expert, they might say that the Explorer brand is not the perfect brand because of this exact question. What does it really mean to be an Explorer? And of course, I think that question is actually 
the answer. I think everyone needs to come up with their own answer to that question. What does it mean to be an explorer to you? It doesn't necessarily mean climbing Everest. That might be what you and I, how you and I define it, but it's by no means the way that I don't want my brand to be defining it for you. I want you to be defining it for yourself. That can be becoming a better chef or deciding you want to plant a garden in your backyard or raising kids. There are so many different ways that you can explore new aspects of your life. And you hit the nail on the head earlier talking about pushing yourself outside your comfort zone because that concept is something that I believe should be integral, that is integral to living a fulfilled life, no matter whether it's in the outdoors or in academics or whatever it might be, pushing yourself outside your comfort zone. But to take a step back and actually answer the question, <laughs> explore the genesis of starting my coffee company came at the beginning of the pandemic when I was working as a management consultant at a top consulting firm and fulfilled in many ways, but feeling an absence of a creative outlet. I guess it didn't help that I have truly zero actual talents. I mean, like, to be clear, I have skills, but I do not have talents. I cannot sing. I cannot dance. I cannot act. I can't draw. I can't paint. I mean, I guess I'm an okay writer, but I'm not some, I'm not a poet or anything like that. And, you know, many good things come from therapy. In my case, it was starting my business because my therapist said to me at the start of the pandemic, when we were all locked in our houses or apartments, in my case, it was a one bedroom apartment with my then boyfriend, now husband in Brooklyn. My therapist said, Kason, I think you need to take on a new hobby. And lacking any talents, you know, I can't play any musical instruments. I mean, I could go on and on listing all of the talents I don't have. I brainstormed and I thought, well, I guess I could sort of flesh out an idea for a business because it's, it's fun. And, and actually, starting a business does require a lot of creativity, but it's creativity that I believe is accessible to pretty much anyone with a passion or desire or interest in following it. It doesn't require natural talent or ability like maybe singing would, for example. And so I jumped right in and I used my spare time to flesh out a bunch of different potential ideas. I gravitated mostly towards food and beverage because I feel like we can all do the me search required to decide what we like at least. And I supplemented or I complemented my me search with market research and analysis skills I'd learned as a consultant. I found some interesting ideas. I think some of them are still <laughs> really interesting. I'd love to develop them at some point. But my fuel throughout this whole project was cold brew coffee. And I, to be completely honest, had not been a huge coffee drinker before. But the pandemic and the lack of, I mean, it's not like you go to a bar and I've never really been one to drink alcohol not that I don't drink alcohol at home, but I wasn't someone who, I wasn't really getting into the at-home mixology at the time. For me, my treat to myself was my coffee breaks. When I would step out of my home office nook and into the kitchen, and that little ritual helped keep me sane, helped keep me feeling like I was doing something different with my life, and it was also keeping me up all night. And so eventually... After weeks and weeks of terrible insomnia brought on by my newly skyrocketing cold brew coffee consumption, my boyfriend, then husband, Fran, begged me. He came up and he's like, he begged me to switch to decaf. And so I went to Amazon.com, typed in decaf cold brew, and nothing came up. 
And Whitney, this was one of those moments. I think if you're ever searching for something and you search on Amazon or you search for Google and nothing comes up, that is a sign. That's the light bulb moment. You should start that or create that, whatever that is that you're looking for. It shows you in the clearest possible way that there is a gap that should be filled. And in this case, the gap, I believe, was not just a decaf cold brew, which was certainly lacking, but in general, the idea that caffeine is, or at the time was one size fits all, just didn't make sense to me. I mean, you can get some decaf coffee, but it's, I mean, decaf is, has a terrible reputation. You could order a decaf espresso, but where's the half calf? Where's the extra calf? Where's my ability to pick and choose? And so that was that pivotal moment where I was able to realize, oh my gosh, there's an opportunity here. It's a personal pain point for me. I want to solve this for myself and for others out there. That was the genesis of Explore Cold Brew. That is such a cool story. And to be completely frank, I've completely forgot that you had all those different levels. And I'm like, oh yeah, I remember like thinking that was so cool to have different levels of caffeine. And it actually makes more sense for me now because I've become more intentional about caffeine each day. I mean, I feel like I start off my day and I'm like, I can have as much caffeine as I want. It's the first thing in the morning. And then later on the day, if I'm feeling tired, I don't want as much. But it's tricky because you either have to have a, a container that tells you exactly how much caffeine is in something, which a lot of coffee, if you brew it at home, you have to like do math to try to figure that out. Or it's just loaded with caffeine because the brands think that that's what you want. So thanks for reminding me of what makes you different. Well, and Starbucks actually deliberately employs that technique by their beverages are highly caffeinated in part because caffeine is the most widely consumed drug on a daily basis in the United States. And we talk about functional ingredients and caffeine is the number one. I mean, 92% of Americans consume caffeine on a daily basis and in any form. And that can take, you know, that can be sodas, that can be coffee, it can be tea, it can be pills. There's even now chocolate with caffeine and gummies with caffeine. There's a whole, or protein shakes, there's a whole range of ways to consume your caffeine now. But interestingly, the FDA does not regulate caffeine in food and beverage products. So anytime you see caffeine content on a label, it's just by choice. So in theory, you could actually drink a beverage and not know if it has caffeine or not. I'm not complaining. I think ultimately it's in our, you know, the food and beverage industry's best interest to provide that information transparently. I'm not looking for the FDA to institute more regulations necessarily. But what I am saying is that it's pretty surprising that you've got a nutritional fact panel on pretty much any beverage you consume, even ones that have zero calories, like our coffee has, it's coffee and water. It has, it's zeros. Then the whole rectangular nutritional fact panel, it'll be zeros everywhere. It'll force you to say, oh, like how much vitamin B and C and D is in there, even if it's nothing, but it won't force you to say how much caffeine is it, isn't it? Just an interesting fact. But anyway, yes, it's addictive <laughs> and widely consumed and people are reliant on it. It's our belief that to your point, you know, there are times when you want a little boost in the afternoon, but you don't want to be up all night. 
And brewing your own coffee is not the best way to, you know, brewing your own, own drink and, and even going to a coffee shop. The amount of caffeine in an espresso shot at Blue Bottle might be different from an espresso shot at Starbucks. And so at Explore, we offer you this range of cold brew concentrates that give you that delicious, high quality, organic and fair trade product that tastes delicious and is transparent about how many milligrams of caffeine is in each ounce. So that you know, if, if you try our Seeker, which is our basically our half-calf cold brew concentrate, you know exactly how much caffeine is in each ounce. So you can make, if you're only using an ounce or half an ounce or two ounces, you'll know exactly how much caffeine's in that beverage. See, this is exactly why I was so drawn to your brand. <laughs> I just think this is so cool. Yeah, you are. And it's also, to your point, there's a gap in the market, even about decaf, which is not something I drink very often. Although the more you're talking about this, I'm like, I just sometimes want to drink coffee. I really love the taste. I love the ritual, like you mentioned. Why don't I drink decaf more often? I mean, part of it is it's hard to find a good decaf. First of all, there's a lot of chemicals in decaffeinated coffees, right? Unless you get it from specific places. It depends. Yes. So that's a great call out because there's two common misperceptions about decaf. One is that it always has chemicals. That's actually not the case. Look for the Swiss water process logo or reference on the label. So for example, our decaf and our half-calf use Swiss water process beans. So the only thing, it basically uses water to wash out the caffeine, a water process. It's going to be a more premium bean. It's a much more expensive bean for us. So it's a very premium bean. So look for the Swiss water process. There's no chemicals. And the second, it's related, but the second misconception is that there is a noticeable amount of caffeine even in decaf. And I can tell you our Swiss water process decaf is 99.9% caffeine free. So, I mean, yes, there are trace, trace, trace amounts, but it is as close to caffeine-free as you can get. And if anyone claims to be able to feel the caffeine in one of our decaf products, it is a purely psychosomatic experience. I promise you it's not actually the level of caffeine that is, my friend, in your head. So, yes, look out for that Swiss. Look for and try and buy Swiss Water Process decaf products. They have a Swiss Water process website. You can read more if you're interested. We don't have the Swiss water process logo on our label, but we do mention it on the side of the bottle. So the daydreamer, which is our decaf is Swiss water processed. That's so cool. Cause a few years ago, I didn't even know what that meant. I think I, I actually learned about that from one of the tr food trade shows where you and I met. And I, at the time there weren't a lot of companies offering that. And I feel like it's slowly becoming more of a trend and really just thinking about what coffee means to each person and what time of the day. The other appeal with yours is the size of the little mini bottles. And I would love to know more about the story around how you bring coffee when you're exploring, because for me, I usually have a number of different methods. I'm very particular about coffee. I don't like to go to a coffee shop unless it's a special occasion because even coffee shops, I feel like are hit or miss. You know, I just went somewhere yesterday and I'm like, really? Your coffee tastes awful. <laughs> like, maybe it's just my opinion, but I would rather make it at home. But when I travel, I have to think about it very differently. And I've tried everything from the instant coffees, which even from the best coffee brands out there, I still think are kind of gross. To I actually make a lot of cold brew on the go, but I have to bring all this equipment and it's messy making your own cold brew. So depending on where you're traveling, that can be a pain. And you have these cute little bottles of concentrate. 
So how did that develop? And what does that mean for you? Like when you're considering your travels and bringing something like that with you? Oh my gosh. Well, I mean, even if I were not the founder of of Explore Cold Brew, I would be the biggest customer of our two ounce bottles. We do have the 32 ounce growler of cold brew concentrate. That is what we sell the most of. It's the, you know, you get 20 to 25 cups of coffee out of that. You can put in your fridge and it can last well, depends on how many <laughs> depends on how many cups you're drinking. Our two ounce bottles, though, were actually our original product. So we didn't start with the 32 ounce. We started with the two ounce because I was drinking mostly ready to drink Cobra at the time. So like cans or, or bottles. And I wanted to do something that had the convenience and ease of ready to drink, but that was smaller format so that it was more, I mean, that I could just put in my pocket. You know, a two ounce bottle is actually quite small. And I found this beautiful glass bottle that wasn't being used by... The only other product that uses a very similar two-ounce bottle is, I think, Ethan's Organic Energy. The Ethan's Organic Energy shots use a similar two-ounce glass bottle. And I just loved it. It was very cute for me. And it was the perfect size to take the concentration that tasted the best, essentially the same concentration as a shot of espresso. So you've got basically this double shot of cold-brewed espresso, I think, in your pocket. You can use it... You can drink it straight up as a shot. And then it's like, you know, it's 200 milligrams of clean coffee and water, clean energy, way better for you than a five-hour energy with, honestly, with substantially more caffeine than a five-hour energy has. Or what I typically recommend is you just add it to ice water, whether you're on the plane, in the car, at work, I mean, even at home, wherever you are, you just add it to a cup of ice water. You can get water from the tap, use it, put it in your water bottle, and instantly you have delicious premium organic cold brew. And so I didn't initially develop it with the travel use case in mind. I mean, it was COVID, so I wasn't actually traveling at all. But it was one of the most lucky, serendipitous aspects of the process of founding the company. As travel returned, I realized that you could take our two-ounce bottles through TSA with you, that you could take it through with no issue. In fact, you could take... Six, 12. I mean, I've traveled with, I typically travel with six to 10 two ounce bottles in my backpack when I'm flying. And I've never actually I had an issue one time. One time I was coming back and I had a ton of two ounce bottles and I tried to bring a hundred two ounce bottles in a carry on bag with me. It was like an entire yeah, like Yeti carry on that did not work. But short of it being um, <laughs> like a hundred bottles, you can easily get away with six to 10. So now when I'm traveling, I mean, like I'm a cold brew addict. For me, the lower acidity and the smoothness is actually my stomach just can't handle hot brewed coffee. I, I'll drink espresso drinks occasionally, but I can't really have hot brewed coffee or, you know, iced coffee, which is hot brewed coffee over ice. So when I'm traveling to Europe, for example, there is very little cold brew in Europe. So I rely on bringing my own coffee. And this is coming from somebody who, I mean, I love trying other people's coffee. I'm not somebody who's gonna be like, oh, I only drink my own coffee all the time. I wouldn't, that's just snobbish. Like I, coffee is the most amazing thing in part because there's so many different beans, origins, roast levels, ways of brewing it. To me, there's nothing more fun than going to a new city and trying out the local coffee shops. And despite my love of trying local coffee shops, I still bring six to 10 with me at all times because the reality is it's just very convenient, (laughs) especially on the plane. I think one other very lucky serendipitous moment is Delta Airlines discovered the product 
as they were as we were emerging from the pandemic. And you can now get Explore Cold Brew on select domestic flights on Delta Airlines, which is so exciting and and just a testament to the fact that it it is it was and is still a unique offering in the cold brew market. Wow, that is so cool. And y- you know, it is true. As much as I can be a coffee snob, I do enjoy occasionally going to a coffee shop when I'm traveling. I think it's more if I'm anywhere near a place where I can make my own, it's hard to spend $7 on a gamble because you know how it is. Like, I think you have to be willing for it to be bad and spending that money. (laughs) But that's true. Like, I mean, when you find a great place or even just getting great beans from somewhere, it's so nice to take it home and make it yourself. And you feel like you can bring that part of the world with you. I've started doing an Instagram series. Oh, you have? Oh yeah. An Instagram series of like cold brew reviews in different places. And sometimes I honestly can't finish the cold brew. So I hear you. Maybe I need to start like expensing my cold brews to my... (laughs) For sure. Yeah. No, because it's research, but also it's such an interesting like way of exposing people and having helping people think about it. Because much like my interest in, in climbing and mountaineering is growing, I haven't always liked coffee. I actually think I started drinking it maybe in like 2015. It's been less than 10 years. And then it's similar to the, how suddenly I start, I've been hiking every day. Now I'm a coffee lover and I make coffee every day and I have all this gear and I'm constantly buying new gadgets and beans and talking to people about it. You know, these things can emerge from you. So I would love to pivot into some different immersions for yourself. But as a segue, I want to know how you drink coffee or what what methods you use when you're doing some of these big adventures. So it doesn't sound like you were much of a coffee drinker back when you were climbing Everest, because that was when? What year was that? That was 10 years ago this year. Yes, 2013. April and May 2013. And so one fun fact, and I think really special fact about you is you are the first openly gay person to climb the seven summits. And I just happen to have a book here that has a list of the seven summits. But I actually, this book that I'm holding, it's called No Summit Out of Sight. We were talking about this earlier. It was written by the youngest person to climb the seven summits, but he talks about how there's technically eight. Yes, there are. Yeah. Which did you climb all eight or did you climb seven and and leave one? Okay. (laughs) Why isn't it just called the eight summits then? You know, it's a good question. Basically, so the seven summits, the highest mountain on each continent and the discrepancy, the seven versus eight comes uh, with respect to the continent of Australia versus Oceania. Like, how do you define that continent? Some people, and my personal view is that it's a little bit of a cop-out. They'll define it as just the island of Australia, which, yeah, again, I don't really know why that has become an accepted definition. But actually, about three-quarters of people who have climbed the seven summits have only done that seventh summit, Kosciuszko, in Australia. They have not done Karsten's Pyramid, which is the highest mountain in the broader Oceania, Australasia continent. And as as I think most people would define that seventh continent. Yeah. So I I don't know how folks really get away with just doing Kosciuszko, but I did both. And along with, I think only a few thousand people have done the seven summits and and only a few hundred have done 
the seven summits with Karsten's pyramid. And in part because it's an extremely challenging, very technical climb that's very hard to get to. It's in Western Papua, which is the same island as Papua New Guinea, which is the eastern half of the island. The western half is a province of Indonesia called Western Papua. It is in so many ways different from the rest of Indonesia. There's long been a separatist movement from that region. It's dangerous, extremely remote, completely undeveloped, except for a very Mordor-esque gold mine at the base of this mountain, Karsten's Pyramid. However, you cannot get to the mountain via the mine because it's sort of like the movie Avatar. I mean, it functions like an independent state. With armed security, you can't get close to the mine. So you have to trek in for seven days each way through some of the densest jungle that I'd ever experienced. That is until I competed in Race Survive Alaska and I experienced bushwhacking like I had never thought possible. But yes, that's the seven summits. And, you know, I think just one last thing on this. I was, was and am so proud to have been the first openly LGBT person to climb the seven summits. And, you know, one question I sometimes get from people is, well, how do you know? And I think that's, it's a great question because the answer is, in theory, I don't know. At the time I Googled it and I, I looked at the list of folks and I searched for openly LGBT mountaineers. None of them had done the seven summits that I could find. And so ultimately I just decided 18 and 19 year old me was like, well, I'm just going to put this out there. And hopefully somebody says, hold on. No, I was the first openly LGBT person. I wanted that outcome because for me as a, an openly gay teenager, I was desperate to have role models who were interested in the same things as me, whether it was outdoors or running or triathlon or mountaineering. And so, yes, in some ways, I'm the reluctant first openly LGBT person and hopefully just the first of many. I would love to be a place where there are countless openly LGBT folks who are climbing these mountains or pursuing these other outdoors or athletic challenges. But unfortunately, we're at a a point right now where that representation isn't just nice to have, but it's a need to have because there aren't enough openly LGBT folks in these domains, in my opinion. And so the more representation we have, the better. And it's one of the reasons why when I did compete on Race to Survive Alaska as the lone representative of the LGBT community, I wasn't trying to be the token gay person, but it was important to me that I bring my rainbow flag. That was my one luxury item was bringing my rainbow flag and a picture of me and my husband. Picture is very lightweight. The flag was very lightweight as well. So that was convenient. But brought those things with me because I was thinking of 14-year-old me who had just come out and how much I would have loved to see that represented on television in an adventure survival show, no less. That's really beautiful and something I did notice while watching it. And I was Bella, your sister, who for those who, who don't know about the show yet, I feel like Bella might have been wearing something. Was there part of your outfit at one point? I felt like I saw more than just a flag, but maybe it's just my fuzzy I wore memory. a rainbow buff pretty much every day of the entire experience. So I was wearing a rainbow at all times and my pack had a small rainbow flag patch on it. So, yeah, there was lots of little <laughs> trying to display it in all sorts of different ways. I also had an Explorer Cold Brew hat that I wore sometimes. So I noticed that too. So I'm curious, like, given that you went into this, 
I'm sure for many reasons. I mean, there's a story about your mother too, right? That you you and Bella share. So there's a, a moving story with your mom, which I would love to touch upon. There's as you and I were talking about back in March, the natural marketing that happens when you're on a reality show on a big network, there's lots of big opportunities to get your name out there. And then there's, as you just shared, bigger missions and wanting that representation. So there's a number of reasons to do something like this, but let's go back to your mom. For those that haven't seen the show or might never see the show, I think that's such a beautiful story to share. My mother is hands down my greatest hero. She is, I was always uh, in the best way possible, I think, a mama's boy growing up. And it helped that she and I ended up having similar interests. Actually, we developed similar interests at the same time. It wasn't one of those situations where my mother was like, oh, I'm a super athlete, so I'm going to make my kids all super athletes. She had a very successful career in finance, in first in law, then in finance. And it was only when she decided to retire at age 40 that she decided she would start running, start running local 5Ks in New Jersey, where Bella and I grew up with our other brothers and with my parents. And at that time, I was maybe 10 or 12 years old. And so I also started running 5Ks. Then she started doing triathlons. And I also started doing triathlons. We'd do sprint triathlons. And then it got longer. It was Olympic distance. Then it was half Ironman distance. And so I did my first half Ironman triathlon at age 13, or maybe it was 12. I mean, insanely young. I had, think I had to get like a waiver because I was under 18 just for insurance purposes to let them, for them to let me compete. And so we actually developed these shared passions together, but she was and, and continues to just be this inspirational figure in part because she is the one who taught us to never let yourself rest in your comfort zone, that you should always be pushing yourself. And if you feel comfortable, you're doing something wrong. That if you're comfortable with the half Ironman distance, well, then sign up for an Ironman. If you're comfortable with the Ironman distance, then do an ultra marathon or do an Ironman on a hilly course if the last one was flat, but constantly challenge yourself to see what else you can achieve. And, and in so doing, realize that you're actually able to accomplish much more than you believe possible. And she's shown this most powerfully in the last five and a half years because she was diagnosed with terminal stage four lung cancer five and a half years ago. And this came as a complete shock. She was in her early 50s, very healthy. They only discovered this cancer because she was struggling to train. Her mobility was limited by what she thought at first was a sports injury in her hip or in her hips. And they couldn't figure out what it was. And they eventually did had scans that showed she actually had a tumor at the base of her sacrum that was limiting her movement. And not only that, but the tumors were everywhere. When she was diagnosed five and a half years ago, the tumors had already spread to her brain and throughout her body. And with that condition, the median life expectancy for a patient is about three months. And so my mother was handed at age 53, a lifetime non-smoker, non-drinker, super athlete, handed a three-month-to-live prognosis. And instead of responding with a very understandable negative reaction. She redoubled her effort to accomplish everything she could on her bucket list and to not let being a patient become the definition of her and her identity. And so she always felt, even after her diagnosis, she has felt to this day that she identifies as an athlete ahead of identifying as a patient. And so to prove that to herself and to others, she has accomplished 
an unbelievable amount in the last five and a half years. She's done just post-diagnosis. She's done four Ironman triathlons, a number, I mean, countless marathons, I think probably five ultra marathons around the world, a hundred kilometers or more. She has continued to push herself even now as she's getting physically weaker. She walks around the neighborhood every day. She will not rest unless she walks two miles. And this is someone who's physically, after five and a half years, it's taken a major toll on her body. But I think one thing that has become even more impressive is as she's gotten more sick and weaker, every time I keep thinking that her mindset will shift to becoming more negative, she somehow finds a way to stay positive. It's so inspirational. Literally, I don't know any other example of somebody who's been able to maintain this strong a mindset and a will to not just live, but to actually to continue pushing yourself through pain, through, I mean, whether it's nausea or like physical pain or her, there's tumors all throughout her lungs. Her ability to breathe has been jeopardized. She's got dozens of small tumors throughout her brain, and yet she doesn't let that stop her from pushing forward day after day, taking it one day at a time, getting out of bed, even when she's miserable forcing herself to walk. And it's the sort of thing that if you were to watch a movie of it, you would say, well, there's no way it was really like that. Like, there's no way she was actually able to stay that strong and that positive. Like, I wouldn't believe it if I didn't have a front row seat to experiencing it and seeing it and learning from it. So Bella and I, my sister Bella and I, when we were out in Alaska filming this television show last summer, we thought about my mother every single day because as hard as what we were experiencing was, we knew that what she experienced on a daily basis was harder. And we knew, as frustrating as it was, that if she had been given the opportunity to compete on a show, like not on, compete on a show, but compete in a challenge like what we had taken on as part of the show, she would be pushing herself beyond what any of us would think is possible. And knowing that quitting or giving up or slacking off was just never ever an option. The producers asked us at one point, based on X, Y, and Z, based on these things that happened to you, based on these conditions, like, at what point did you think, can I keep going? And I almost didn't even understand the question because the concept of quitting, it's just not an option. I mean, I feel moved to tears. My eyes are all watery right now because it's so beautiful to hear that. And it helps give more context but Kaysen, it's had a ripple effect directly on me because since I saw the show and since I have the pleasure of, of having a connection, being able to talk to you, sometimes I think about you when I'm on my hikes. You know, actually, the day that you booked yourself on this show was one of the more challenging hikes that I've taken recently. And I don't know why. It was just hard. And I kept thinking, like, maybe I should turn around. Like, maybe my body's trying to tell me it's too much. Because there's a big balance. I'd love to hear more about this for you on the show, but I'll first share the story of, like, trying to figure out, like, is my body signaling that I should stop? Or is it just, like, my brain maybe playing some games on me, right? So that day, it was so perfect timing. The day that you emailed me, I'd finally just taken a pause. I didn't give up on the hike, but I just took a pause and I checked my phone as I was like eating a snack. And that's when I heard from you. And I wrote you an email, like how helpful it was to hear from you on a day that I was struggling. I was laughing at it. I'm like, this is not that challenging relative to what I saw you do on the show. And it's making me emotional 
too, because it's like you- you're making me emotional now. <laughs> <laughs> we'll both start crying. Like your mom passed you down that gift that you're passing down to other people like me. And it's like, I don't even know your mom, but I just feel so much gratitude and awe. And now I can think of your mom too, because, you know, earlier this morning, I went on another challenging hike. And I remember there was a moment where I could, like the path that I was on came to a crossroads and I use the app All Trails. I love like completing trails, (laughs) like just, you know, I don't know if you use it, Kaysen, but like on that app, it'll like verify when you've completed a trail, but you have to do the whole thing. And I really enjoy that satisfaction. But today it was much more challenging than I thought. And when I got to the crossroads, I thought, okay, I've done enough. I could take this loop and not technically complete the whole trail. Or I could go just one extra additional mile and push myself. And I had to stop and think like, is it my ego that wants to finish the trail? Or is it kind of like the lesson that your mom is sharing of like, I'm uncomfortable, but that doesn't mean I should stop. Yeah. In fact, it's a sign to keep going. It's funny you share that anecdote from today because it's actually so frustratingly similar to something my mother will do and has done for such a long time, which is in families when we're hanging out, there sometimes is compromise. And my mother will fake compromise. So for example, she loves to bike. She loves to cycle. And you know we all do triathlons together. So cycling is obviously part of that. But growing up in central New Jersey, there's it's not like cycling in New York City, which I find super dangerous and scary because I live in New York City. And I wish that I could cycle more in New York City, but I just don't feel safe doing it. In central Jersey, there's beautiful roads and farmland you can cycle through. And so my mother will say like, okay, she'll know that, for example, I like, I'm motivated by cycling to something. So I don't get the satisfaction from completing, for example, a certain achievement. For me, I like to cycle to a brunch spot. Now, if the brunch spot were 20 miles away versus 12 miles away, I actually wouldn't care. I just want to go cycle there, enjoy my brunch and cycle back because it feels like I'm doing something. So that's so what she'll do is she'll say, oh, do you want to go on a ride? Do you want to go cycle? So I'm like, okay, sure. Yes, that'd be great. Beautiful Saturday. Let's go do that. She'll, okay, great. Cycle to brunch. And then we'll go and we'll be approaching the brunch spot. And she'll be like, well, what if we just went one mile further? I'm like, oh my gosh. Okay, fine. So we'll go. They're like, oh, let's just to the top of that hill. And then we end up after a few times, like you end up basically doing double the distance, which I would never have said yes to because that's not how I'm wired. But for her, she is always just trying to push it a little bit further. If she finishes something and she feels like she could have gone a little bit further, then that's not really like sort of a full achievement. And I mean, even if it's just getting to the brunch spot and going up, there's like a hill right out of the brunch spot, of course, a steep hill. So even like on the most mild of days, she would insist that we just push it at least up to the top of the hill and back. It's just that that extra 10% or more, sometimes it's more than 10%. But it's that extra 10%, I think, that really does the difference. You know, that's the difference between doing a workout and being an Ironman or being a runner versus, or being a triathlete versus being an Ironman. It's that mindset of like, I'm just going to push myself a little further. And so I would say, don't keep that. I mean, don't abandon that mindset and the discomfort she would say, I mean, she has a very extreme view on these things. I'm sort of in the middle, but her view is that discomfort is the best sign that you should keep going. And that, I mean, she is notorious 
for saying, I mean, her adage that she has passed on to me, but again, she's the most extreme. It's all mental. That it is, it is all mental and that there's actually nothing that you can't do. If I said to you, Whitney, tomorrow you have to complete an Ironman triathlon, you could do it. Have you done an Ironman yet? No, and I have no desire in this moment to do one. But I think this, what I'm learning is that you never know where these desires will come from. And it's like so interesting as an exercise case and to think about that. I mean, even with Everest, the fact that that is a new idea for me. And like sometimes I tell people, I'm actually often nervous about telling people because it's new and it's like I'm nowhere near what I think is ready right now. If you were like, okay, Whitney, I'm buying you a ticket and you're going out there. Like, I don't know if I could do it. I don't know if that's part of your point. Like, (laughs) what does it take to get ready for Everest? I'm not even sure in this moment. And people convince themselves that the level that they need for something, I find that with a lot of my friends, especially I have friends who I love, but who are motivated to pursue things that are challenging, which is great. That's a great baseline, but they'll convince themselves that there's a certain threshold that they need to meet. So for example, I have a friend I'm not going to name because I don't want to, you know what, should I name him? Really put it out there. No, he's great. He signed up for a half Ironman and he did it and it went great. And I'm so proud of him. And so I said to him, amazing. Why don't you, like, do you want to do an Ironman? He said, yes. And then he said, but I can't yet. It's like, why can't you? He says, well, I'm not ready yet. I haven't trained enough. But what's, I think, very revealing is the Ironman that I proposed was one. I also signed up. I'm signed up for an Ironman in November. When we were having this conversation, he had nine months. You can do anything in nine months. I mean, nine months is plenty of time. It's an excuse for people to convince themselves they can't do anything. I like to say that the invention of the half Ironman, same as the invention of the half marathon, it's this brilliant marketing ploy by the Ironman Corporation and by marathon race organizers around the world to convince you that you need to do that as a stepping stone to doing a full Ironman. You actually don't. It's the same level of fitness to do a half Ironman as an Ironman. It's completely mental. But I'm getting sidetracked because I want to share with you on the point of Everest. So the moral of that story is don't convince yourself that the level of fitness, training, accomplishment that you need is higher than it actually is. And we can talk about that more offline. (laughs) But here's what it took for me. When I was first climbing as a teenager, my climbing coach was this amazing woman. And there was some misunderstanding, miscommunication, misunderstanding. To this day, I don't really know how or why we had this misunderstanding. But she asked me, she asked me to remind her, she said, Casey, remind me, when are you climbing Everest again? As if I were getting coached by her to climb Everest. And I was like, what are you talking about? I can't climb Everest. And she was like, what are you talking about? Because you definitely can climb Everest. And that one conversation changed my life because it was in that moment. I mean, I then believed for the first time that this childhood dream that I never actually believed was achievable, that it was just actually in that moment did not have a plan to climb Everest. But it planted the seed that, oh my gosh, I could climb Everest. I, Case and Crane, could get to the top of Mount Everest. And that actually I could do it in a year and not, if I found a way to go and, and get a trip organized and, and all that, I could actually do this. I could physically have the capability to do it sooner than I even believe possible. It was a very impactful conversation. 
And so that was my moment that it sounds like you've had recently where you're like, yeah, like don't shy away from that. I can tell you from personal experience, the level, okay, how do I say this? I never say anything is easy because the reality is easy. Nothing's really easy in life. Getting yourself out of bed, get for me, I'm a fit athletic person. Getting myself out of bed, putting my running shoes on and getting out the door to run, that's actually not easy for me. So I never say anything is easy. So do not misinterpret what I'm about to say as meaning that. Everest is not easy, but it is doable. And if you have the means to get on an Everest expedition, it is doable. Well, I think you're the first person I've talked to about my dream that has climbed Everest. It's such helpful context because I realize that most people, when you talk about something like that, I mean, I think climbing Mount Everest is like one of the greatest human achievements, which isn't even my drive. I'm still trying to figure out why I want to climb it. I have an episode on this podcast years ago where I'm pretty sure I was mocking people for like the ego around Everest. Because a few years ago, I don't know if you remember this, Kaysen, but there was like all these news stories coming out about how there was like the lines of people getting to the summit and how dangerous it was. And there's that famous photo of the line up to Everest at the very top. And my former co-host Jason and I did an episode and we were like, what's wrong with these people are risking their lives just to take a photo? And I'm like, for those listening, I am rolling my eyes a little bit for a reason I'll explain in a minute. So yes, you were making fun of the people in line. I mean, I'm curious to hear your reason because back then I had no desire to climb it. So it just seems silly. I'm like, why would you, the ego involved? And I question that too. Sometimes there's a lot of ego that can come up in these excursions. Like even that the times where I'm like, I just want to complete the all trails trail that I'm on. Like there's my ego of saying I did it. I don't feel that with everything. Yeah. <laughs> like ego motivates. So like, I mean, why do you have a podcast? Yeah. <laughs> like ego is not a bad thing. It's what motivates us to like pursue things. I don't know. Like it's great. It's a good thing. I don't know. No, I think that's important too. And these are the thoughts that actually come up while hiking. Like it's such a therapeutic experience for me. Even today I was hiking for two and a half hours and I'm like, wow, this was transformative. Like I get to process so much. And I started off having all this anxiety about something. And by the time I did my trail, I was like not even thinking about it anymore. And all these ideas come up. I mean, the benefits of being in nature are immense. And I'm, I'm curious for you, something I kept thinking about, Kaysen, <laughs> with watching your show, which is such a cool thing when it's documented in that way versus I don't know how much you documented climbing the seven summits. I mean, 10 years ago, we didn't really have the same relationship with documentation that we do today. Yeah. I wish we'd had the... <laughs> really? Why? Well, I know I wish I had documented it more because when you know I was a teenager and I think, I think I just thought I'd remember everything. <laughs> and in reality, you never remember everything. <laughs> and I did keep a journal, which I have, thankfully. But also, the technology has gotten so much better. I mean, I was using a point-and-shoot digital camera that ran out of battery in the freezing cold of the summit of Everest, right? So I was limited by technology to a degree. It was like early iPhone days at that point. We didn't have the amazing iPhone cameras we have now. We didn't have cell service all the way up Everest. There was a cell service at one point near base camp 10 years ago. But you had to like trek out onto the glacier to get like one bar of service. I want to go back briefly to 
include the thought on, wait. We were talking about the photo on Everest because is that what you oh, mean? Oh, the photo on Everest. Yeah. Yes, 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 yes. Thank you. Okay, Do you know thanks which for one I'm me. referencing? It was probably in 2020 and it's a famous photo that one of the, I feel like he showed up in a documentary I watched later and I was like, oh, it's that guy. Yes, Nims, 14 Peaks yeah. was his documentary. And he's like a famous, like, he's in a lot of these documentaries about these mountains, right? Yes. So it's an iconic photo, and I think it does speak to one of the real challenges. And I mean, yeah, it's, it's not unfair to say it's a problem that there are at times and in certain places lines up Everest. But there are a couple things I want to say. Number one, most of the time you're not waiting in line on Everest. And number two, the lines are because the people climbing Everest are reliant on the fixed rope, the rope that is anchored into the ice all the way up to the summit. And so that particular photo that you're referencing, if I remember correctly, comes on the Lhotse face, looking up from camp three, up the Lhotse face to the yellow bed, up towards high camp. And I will say that's a pretty tough spot to pass people. So you're probably going to wait in line for a bit there, but there are even then ways you can get around that. For example, the reason that there's a line is that most people go at the first good weather window. They're desperate to get to the summit and off the mountain, so they'll go then. If you would like to wait a few days or a week or two weeks for a different weather window when it's going to be less crowded, you can do that. And the other alternative when you're going up for the summit, because that's the other moment that people often will wait in line, there are certainly places, and I know this from personal experience, where you or you and your Sherpa, in my case, I was climbing with an amazing Sherpa named Kami Rita. He and I were climbing buddies from each, in, on my team, each of us had a climbing buddy. So Kami Rita was my buddy. We passed people. We unclipped from the fixed line and passed people. Other folks climbing Everest will never unclip from the fixed line. Well, for safety reasons. But my mindset was if I'm not comfortable unclipping from the fixed line ever, then I probably shouldn't be on the mountain. Now, at the same time, I'm not trying to just unclip willy-nilly and be reckless, but there's certainly places where even a beginner climber should be fine as long as you're keeping being mindful about where you're placing your feet, your footwork, and climbing with your ice axe and able to self-arrest if you were to slide down the face. So that's what I would say. I think that the lines are they're not actually representative of what most of climbing Everest is like. And the other thing is people talk about the commercialization of Everest, but I think within reason, there's not often pushback against that point of view. It sort of escapes unchallenged. And I think it's actually an extremely elitist perspective where these old school climbers who don't want anything to change, they grew up climbing in the day when it was just hardcore professional climbers on the mountains. They want it all to themselves. And that's sad to me. Because, yeah, I'm not a professional climber, and I don't have the ability or capability to be a professional climber. It's also not what I'm – I have other passions. I love running my coffee business. And if I had to choose, oh, you can climb Everest, but you have to be a professional climber or not, then I would have never been on that mountain. And I feel so lucky that I had the chance to see what I saw and experience what I did climbing Mount Everest. And I hope you do too because it's incredible. It's a childhood dream come true. It was incredibly beautiful. I stood on the summit of Everest and watched the sunrise. And was there ego involved? Absolutely. But ego is involved in everything. We take on challenges because we want to push ourselves out of our comfort zone. That is inherently ego-driven. 
but also it's one of the great joys in life to believe that you are taking what you believe is possible, what you believe you can accomplish and proving yourself wrong, proving to yourself that you can actually do more than that. So I would say, I'm glad you have your view has evolved in the last few years. And I really hope you get the chance to climb Everest. I think it'd be an amazing and transformative experience. Thank you. What incredibly powerful words for something like this. And yes, it is about doing things that you didn't think you could do or you didn't think you were capable. I mean, it it just comes back to your mother. What's your mother's first name, by the way? Isabella. 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 Oh, well, it's easy to remember because your sister's name is Bella. Yes. The Bellas, it's my grandmother, my mother, my sister. I'm sure she will not be the last Isabella in the family. Oh, it's such a beautiful name. You know, I really meant it when it's bringing new meaning to so much of my own experience and that mindset that, as you described, is very rare and something that's hard to understand unless you've experienced it. But witnessing this from secondhand with you is just, I can see the impact, you know, like through your words and like what you're realizing about yourself. And we don't have a ton of time left with each other, Case, and I could talk to you for hours about these things, but I want to make sure we talk about what you learned about yourself through doing this reality show. (laughs) Because for context, assuming since it wasn't like it's on the USA Network, I don't know how many viewers Streaming on Peacock now. Yeah. Yeah. That's where I watched it. I think there's a lot of survival shows out there now and there's race shows. And this, I can truly say, I would say this, even if Kaysen were not here with me right now, that it's so worth a watch. It's It really surprised me. I was just could not wait for the next episode to come out, Kaysen. And I acknowledged throughout the entire time I was watching it how incredibly challenging it seemed. Like I couldn't wait to talk to you about this because I just felt like, wow, like the things that you had to do to compete in this race, but then the things you had to do to just survive, like truly that word survival was a big role. And now that it's been, what, over a year now since you finished actually doing it, what has that been like for you this past year post a huge experience like that? Whitney, it's a great question. I wish I could say it was just all positive. It's been a mixed bag. So let me start. I'll try and be relatively organized and collecting my thoughts on this. I think, first of all, by the way, I agree. I was very pleased that it was. It ended up being an enjoyable show because two months edited down into 10, 45-minute episodes can go a lot of different directions. And I was actually, yeah, I thought it was both exciting and I think I was pleased that they were able to capture how real it was. They weren't manufacturing drama. So to anyone out there who's listening to this, you can know going in, like everything you see is real. There's always going to be editing. They've got to edit the show in order to make it a digestible series. But if anything, it doesn't actually fully do justice to how dangerous and how real it was, which is, well, that's terrifying considering the emergencies that you actually do see on the show because there was even more behind the scenes. But to get back to what I found to be most profound. You mentioned, Whitney, how even when you go on a two or three hour hike, how you can experience this zen or this ability to think and feel in an almost uninhibited way where it's like you're accessing new parts of your mind or your soul. This just allows you to process more, to think about things in a different light. And yeah, there's something about nature. There's something about physical activity. And actually, There are studies that show that walking stimulates part of your brain that enhances your function, that 
So it's it, there's actually like scientific basis to this. Like they're finally you know sort of showing that the data that this isn't just a gut feeling that we have. It's actually backed up by science. I had that experience, but times instead of two hours, it was two months. Two months with no access to my phone or any devices, not even any information from or about the outside world, with minimal contact with people and certainly no contact with friends and loved ones. I mean, I'm talking about minimal contact as in like contact with the people filming us in the wilderness who are obviously there to ask us questions, to interview us. That was the extent of my contact outside of the group of other racers on this show and my sister. And some of the positive benefits I had from that, you know, when you watch the show, as you know, Whitney, some of the, there's six race legs where you're racing in an adventure race style, think like amazing race, map and compass, Alaskan wilderness. And then in between each race, like there was actually up to a week of survival camp. And those portions are shown in the show, but they don't get as much airtime because not as much happens. They actually had to squeeze a lot into these 10, 45 minute episodes. And so you'll often get maybe five to 10 minutes of survival camp when in fact that was three, four, five, six days even of us foraging for food, talking with amongst with each other. And to be honest, I spent a lot of time laying in my sleeping bag, looking up at the trees, looking up at the sky and the clouds. And just, it almost got me into a meditative, or I spent a lot of time in, in essentially a meditative state. And it allowed me to detach from the nonstop stress of being a founder, being a solo founder of an emerging beverage brand. And I couldn't think about work. I mean, I couldn't, I literally couldn't think about work because there was nothing I could do about it. I could, even if I realized that, oh my gosh, you know, I had dropped the ball on something major, there was nothing I could do. I would have had to leave the show in that case. And as the show progressed, I actually was able to evolve my mindfulness, my informal mindfulness sessions to occasionally thinking about work, but only in that sort of exciting big picture way where everything, you sort of are able to zoom out and think about things on a macro level that can be hard to achieve in the day to day. So that was one of the most positive aspects of being in the wilderness. It was also interesting and positive to have the opportunity to both to take part in a challenge that was captured on video. And I wish actually that every episode were longer so that you could see even more of the adventures and the challenges that we overcame. Because of course, there's pieces you just will, that will never see the light of day. But it, at least I got these 10, 45 minute episodes that show the relationship between me and my sister develop and strengthen, not without its challenges, but of course, by the end of the two months, become even just an incredibly strong unit bonded in a way that we will never forget and never lose. And yeah, to have that captured was such a powerful thing for me to show my mother as well, to show her that we were in our living, her spirit and her mindset, even when she's not around. <laughs> On the flip side, well, this is sort of more neutral, but when you're being recorded 24-7, I think my sister Bella and I were thoughtful about how we were going to be portrayed. And to be honest, it was not a given that we would be portrayed positively. I think when you watch the show, you come off with a, a net positive impression of me and my sister and an accurate one. I mean, it's not false impression by any means. And I think there was a world where they could have edited it in a less favorable way, which I think would have been deceptive. But you're always aware that the editors have a lot of power. And I think it makes you very thoughtful about, or 
you try and be thoughtful about what you say. It doesn't work all the time. I mean, at the end of the day, when you're recorded 24-7, there's only so much you can do. But I think in an interesting way, it forced us to live a life of always taking that extra second to think about what we're going to say out loud. And I think it's a nice way of, I think maybe we should all live that way in our real lives. (laughs) So I guess that's actually a positive as well, was having that lesson of, oh, when you actually take a second, take a beat before saying something out loud that might be combative or controversial or inflammatory, that actually, you know, you end up not fighting as much. On the less positive side, coming back from this experience, I came back on an incredible high because of the first thing I mentioned, which was this amazing, unique opportunity to have this incredible mindfulness, this Zen meditative state, these reflections. I literally would write lists in my head of all the things I was grateful for and things that I missed, things that I appreciated, it was, and foods that I missed. I mean, everything, like TV shows that I wanted to watch. And it wasn't just like, oh, I wish I were watching this. It was this like sort of brainstorming, like, oh, I'm so grateful for these things. I'm grateful for... And then I came back and being thrust back into the founder, the position as a solo founder was very challenging because I went from one end of the spectrum all the way to the other. My business was in a challenging position to be fully transparent. And I needed to do a little bit of saving the business. Yeah, and that put me in a pretty got me in a pretty dark state, actually. I was the most depressed I've ever been in my life towards the end of last year and beginning of this year. And just feeling like I had gotten a taste of what it was like to live a life with balance, to live a life where I wasn't constantly stressed. And then I went from that. And if I would just come back in the business had been doing okay, maybe I would have been able to maintain that. Instead, It was like all hands on deck, like I've got to save the business and make really hard decisions that, you know, would have profound, challenging implications for us. And it was been very hard. And I will say I'm an open book. One thing that's been truly life-changing for me in the last six months has been SSRIs. I started on Prozac in the spring and it has just been incredible. I am so grateful and glad to have that tool in my arsenal, in addition to therapy, which I was going to before and continue to go to now, in addition to my support system that I have outside of that, my husband, my siblings, my friends, but I'm just blown away by the positive impact that's had on my life. And I'm so grateful that my therapist suggested that we try it. Because my mother has a lot of amazing qualities and my, you know, my family is amazing. But I will say one of the maybe less positive one is that her cancer diagnosis aside, she's with general life medication. She's one of those people who's like, if you're in pain, maybe just grit through it rather than taking a painkiller. Even now, by the way, she's been prescribed opioids for the severe pain she's in and she's determined to not take them. I mean, she is very much like a don't medicate if you don't need to sort of thing. And I I respect that point of view, but I'm glad that I took a different path for myself and it's worked out really well for me. Everyone's different, but I just want to say, you know, when I was researching SRIs before I went on them, I heard it. I mean, millions of people are on them and are very happy. I actually got a, a fair number of people who were like, oh, I had a terrible experience. So this is my personal experience. I'm just putting out there to the world in case there are folks that are listening to this. Do your own research. But for me, at least, I've had minimal to no side effects and it has only been positive. 
Thank you for sharing that. It's like another level of representation on showing different sides because there's a lot of stigmas out there around medication. And I've talked about my experiences with them as well. And it's something that is to be determined between you and a medical professional if you seek one or some other form of support. And and everyone's different. Yeah. It's like, how could you know if something doesn't, if you don't believe in something or something doesn't work for you, that doesn't mean that someone else doesn't believe in it or it won't work for them. And I'm really glad that you brought that up because mental health, there's so many different theories on it. And, and one of my big aims is to paint the whole, as much of the picture of it as possible from all these different angles so that it's not seen as this one size fits all approach or right or wrong, good or bad, black and white. And I, it's like the spectrum of color that I see with you in so many ways, how you're doing this through your work with your company and just showing the different ways that you can use coffee to the different ways you can approach running a business to going on adventures. I mean, it's just impressive. And yet you acknowledging that just because you've had all these great successes, they haven't come with challenges that are hard to overcome. And those stories are just important representation. Well, and I felt guilty at first for even, I have such a great life. I was like, how could I be this depressed if my life is this great? And I just, I grew up in the luckiest possible circumstances with essentially every advantage that you could imagine. Incredible parents, an affluent family, parents who were accepting and embraced me when I came out and embraced me for my full self immediately without question amazing siblings who became my friends, like the best schooling that one could dream of, like literally every single advantage I've had. And yeah, that was a real, I was like, it made it so much worse because I was like, I was beating myself up even more <laughs> thinking how terrible a person am I to have had all these advantages, to have this great life and to not be happy. Like that's actually, that was really the worst of it. And to your point about, you know, there's a different... Medicine can take so many different forms, whether it's going hiking, whether it's doing yoga or meditation or breath work, or whether it's therapy or finding a sort of a therapy and talking to your friends or your family, or whether it's some form of medicine. And I never would have thought for myself that the medicine would actually be my part of my answer. It's not the whole answer, but it is for me. And I'm just glad that I was open-minded to trying that in the end. And yeah, I'm really glad. So, And I'm glad too, because it's part of survival. And that's a huge part of your story. Mental health is, isn't it one of the leading cause of death for, it's certainly for certain age ranges it is. It's a big issue right now. And just like you train yourself and bring specific equipment with you when you go on a big adventure, you're gearing up for your survival. And medicine can be seen the same way, that you're using a tool in order to survive. Absolutely. Yeah. And you can have multiple tools in the arsenal. Yes. And they'll change and evolve. You know, just like, I mean, I, the things that I've learned about gear over the last few years since I've gotten into camping and hiking. I mean, you look at who I was just a few months ago and what the tools that I had, and I swapped those out for other things as they suited me. And some things like my shoes will wear down and maybe I'll get a completely different brand of shoes. You know, like medicine is the same thing. Like you either don't need it or you switch it or you change your dose. And again, I think it's beautiful that, you know, you said transparency is 
sounds like a core value of you. I don't think those were your exact words, but you mentioned transparency as a founder, as a brand owner, your commitment to learning and researching and experimenting. And that's coming through in so many ways, so many elements of you. And it just makes you that much more of a amazing person in my eyes. And I'm so grateful that you've spent this time with me. I know you have a a dinner coming up with your husband that I want to acknowledge your time, but it's hard to close off a conversation like this, Kason. Well, we'll have to continue it another time. And I look forward to hearing more updates as you progress on your Everest journey, however long that may be. And yeah, I'm here if you have any questions, of course. One final thing on just on Everest, because I think it's valuable, hopefully for you and for others to keep in mind is when someone climbs Everest or and substitute in any challenging thing, right? Everest is just a placeholder. But when somebody has climbed Everest and they come to you and talk to you about it, the vast majority of people will make it sound like the hardest thing ever. Why? Because it makes their achievement even more impressive. And keep that in mind because they are sometimes intentionally and sometimes unintentionally convincing you that you can't do it. I obviously take the opposite approach where I love convincing someone, showing someone that actually they can do it. But I think I learned early on that when someone has done something that they believe is hard, it's in their self-interest usually to convince you of the hardness of the thing they just did. And don't let that get to you. Don't let that deter you from pursuing hard things. And my hope would be for others to pass on that message to when you feel like you're about to say something that could convince someone not to do something, change your tune and instead frame it as how they could do the same thing you just did. How can they sign up for their first Ironman? How can they potentially climb Everest next season or something like that? Or how can they start their own business? That's the biggest Everest for me. Anyway, sorry, I can go on and on. We'll have to do another one of these. I know, it's so hard. But you've done such a beautiful job of talking about hard things. I mean, there's so many themes in this episode, but just inspiring people. I mean, the way that you've talked to me about this, it truly has a massive impact that I don't even think I know yet because I'm still so new on that journey. But it could have gone the opposite way. Just like you said, it's... It is a common experience for people that have achieved something to either oversimplify it or make it sound impossible so that they might feel special. And I love, you feel like the happy medium. You're not trying to say, as you, as you mentioned earlier, that something's easy, but it's still achievable. And I think finding that middle ground when it comes to anything, as you mentioned, uh, personal endeavors, professional endeavors, all of these adventures and exploring. I think when people can listen to someone like you, Kaysen, it makes them more likely to explore whatever that means to them because it's not oversimplified and it's not overcomplicated. I hope so. That's the goal. Thank you for having me, Whitney. Maybe some of this has uh, clarified more of the mission for Explorer Cold Brew, which speaking of which... We have a discount code for, which is Whitney20. Is it Whitney? Does the capitalization matter? Capitalization doesn't matter, but the 20 is a two and a zero. So Whitney20. Excellent. Don't put Whitney100. You will not get 100% off, but Whitney20. So that'll be in two places to make it 
simple for you to check it out. If you were inspired by this conversation, if you love coffee, if you like to travel, or if you want a convenient way to enjoy a delicious cold brew, I will put a link to that in the description of this episode right there in your podcast player. And also there's a full blog post. My wonderful team puts this together. It includes quotes and pictures of hopefully, Kaysen, I can get some imagery from you and put it in there. Otherwise, it'll be some stock images. <laughs> so much better if it comes directly from you. We'll put it in there when the video is ready on YouTube. We'll get it up if you want to see the visuals of our conversation. And that is also in the podcast player, or you can go directly to wellevator.com. That's W-E-L-L-E-V-A-T-R.com. Find this episode, the links, the discount code will be there, and you can continue your journey, your adventure, your exploration with Kaysen, checking out his Instagram, social media. I think you're you're doing TikTok as well, I saw. Yes, I, I do TikTok as well. Which is great. Yeah. I mean... <laughs> I love all the seeing these short videos, these little bite-sized moments of people's lives. There's so many great things, plus other podcasts you're on, Case. And the journey does not end here with him. So please take the next step by going to the description. Thank you so much, Kaysen. Again, it, it's so hard to say goodbye, but we'll just say goodbye for now. Thanks, Whitney. Goodbye for now. Thanks for listening and getting out of your comfort zone with us today. For show notes and more high-performance resources to help you thrive, go to wellevator.com. That's W-E-L-L-E-V-A-T-R.com.